Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is uh, class 17 of 32 of our jhana structured study, and this is the third class on uh, the Arya Pariya Sana Sutta, uh, the Sutta on noble and ignoble searches. Um, the third, did I say the third of three classes on this? Um, and so this is another um, very important sutta in that this is where the the Buddha is describing the importance of understanding what we're practicing for and how exactly to practice and how to keep that practice pure and the importance of that. And so that relates to uh, the need for a well-concentrated mind in order to keep our Dhamma practice focused where it needs to be. Again, and that's really the, the only reason why the Buddha taught concentration. Now, of course, there's value just in the in the mundane world with having a well-concentrated mind. But the reason we do it is to hold in mind the Eightfold Path, which also should teach us or show us that when we grasp after something beyond that, as far as Dhamma practice, we're really falling into salvation rather than liberation. So I'm going to just go back um, a couple of sentences to where I, t- I stopped. But just to um, elaborate on something that I didn't touch on what's today, on Tuesday's class. So, um, the Buddha has awakened. And this sutta begins at that point where the Buddha's contemplating, first, can he teach what he's developed? And then he realizes that, um, and, and is, there, is there a value out in the world to spread this knowledge? And in contemplation... And with this now newly well-concentrated mind and newly awakened state, he realizes that there will be some people like himself that will be able to understand what he's teaching, and then there'll be others that won't. And so he also realizes that it's an important part of the rest of his life to not be distracted by those that don't want to learn what he has to teach, which doesn't mean he's rejecting these people. It simply means it would be a waste of his time to teach his Dhamma to people that just don't want to hear it for whatever reason. They want something else or they're resistant to it. And and you'll notice, um, this came up yesterday too, uh, with uh, Buddha's dealings with uh, Vachagoda, how Vacha kept coming to the Buddha with these questions. And the Buddha would always send Vachagoda away saying, Vachi, it's your questions that are confusing you. Let go of the questions. Rather than try to hold himself out as some great mollifier of all beings, and thinking that he had to provide an answer that wouldn't reflect the Dhamma. So and it was really out of sympathy that he would send Vachi on his way, or hopefully get Vachi to think, maybe I should listen to what this guy is saying, rather than telling that man what I want him to teach me. Again, you see the, the, main, the maintenance of ignorance in that view. So, the Buddha then thinks to this, that he would teach the Dhamma so that they can also realize, meaning other human beings, just like himself. They could also realize the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke of the unbinding, unbinding from views 
ignorant of Four Noble Truths rather than maintaining that by seeking salvation or seeking mollification of my feelings or seeking something that, um, you know, it's, it, it, think about someone who, who is born into a family that isn't religious at all and they get out into the world and a lot of their friends are, uh, are various denominations of Christianity. So they're going to start looking, if they're interested, they're going to start looking at different Christian faiths and they're going to settle on one that, that resonates with them that makes them feel good, but doesn't necessarily challenge them towards something. It's, it's something that they can fit in nicely without really changing anything, any of their beliefs. Hence the proliferation of an endless number of different Buddhist so-called religions because they fit people's views very nicely, or at least to the extent that they can keep people interested in what they're teaching. It, it was just like that during the Buddhist time. And again, remember where we started this, where the Buddha was meant with, learned from Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta, two of the most foremost spiritual religious teachers of his time. He mastered their dharmas and rejected them out of hand because they didn't lead to understanding. He wasn't saying, in fact, even in this sutta, the Buddha talks with great respect about his teachers. Of course, he respected these, but just if, because he didn't, there's a great misunderstanding that because he didn't follow them, because he rejected their teachings, that he was somehow rejecting them as human beings. No. In fact, you remember in this sutta where the Buddha, upon his awakening, wanted to go back to Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta, not to confront them, but out of sympathy for them, to say, listen, I figured it out. Come with me. Out of sympathy. Not out of coercion, not out of salvation, just out of being a human being. But he wasn't going to tell Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta, I'm going to teach you what makes you comfortable. He says, I'm going to teach you something that's going to challenge you. Just as one standing on a high peak might see people below, you, meaning the wise one, with profound vision, must take your place in the palace of the Dhamma. It's such a significant line. Excuse me. The Buddha left a secular palace, didn't he? He had all the wealth any human being could ever want, and he also had power to go with that wealth. He could command people to do his bidding, and they would. But that wasn't a palace that he was interested in. He talked about that palace, the thing that, that most people think we should be grasping after and hope to develop in this world. It's what human life is about, getting the most stuff. And he called that a confining place. A prison. The liberation was found in the palace of the Dhamma. And he was able to make that clear distinction more so than most other human beings because he had known that great wealth. But he also had known the abject poverty of... Um, uh, oh, what's, what's the... What did he practice? I can't think of the word. It starts with an A. Ah, asceticism. Jesus. And he hadn't, so he know he had known those both extremes of human experience, and realized it's not either one. Both are painful. The middle way, which which establishes the cessation of ignorance and the cessation of eye making. So riches aren't a distraction or something to chase after, but the the pain of asceticism, just to make a point, is also recognized as not leading to the goal. It's here. Where's the middle way? Where does the middle way resolve, resolve between those two extreme views? 
is right here, being a human being, not grasping after anything. You must take your place in the palace of the Dhamma, free from suffering. Look on those suffering, oppressed with birth and aging. Look at them, just see them clearly, just like we are doing with ourselves. And then he says to himself, he says, you have conquered ignorance, the whole point. This is what we're doing. Be a great teacher and wander without entanglements. Go out into the world. You can do it without getting entangled in the world. We can too. Teach your Dhamma. There will be those who will understand. But it's for those that will understand. It's not for those that won't or can't. So then he says, out of compassion for all beings, from my awakened state, I looked out onto the world. I saw beings with little dust in their eyes and beings with much. I saw uncluttered beings and dull beings. I saw beings with good qualities and beings with bad bad qualities. Excuse me. Some people object, and it kind of happened yesterday and Thursday's, uh, and the day before yesterday and Thursday's class, that we shouldn't be pointing out bad qualities in human beings or even talking about it. We should only be looking at the positive. And, and people today, my, I, there was a, a guy years ago that I used to have to listen to because my mom did. His name was Dr. Carlton Fredericks. And he was the one most responsible for the proliferation of this idea that we should only be thinking positive things. His, his radio, he was on 3 o'clock every weekday afternoon on WOR radio. My mother listened to it. And she lived her life in that, in, in a, 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 a positive bubble heavily influenced by, by Roman Catholicism. Again, it, it, she wasn't right or wrong and she wasn't bad. She was a wonderful woman. But she never really gained any real rest and understanding in her whole life because she was basing it on a fabrication. Again, it, it's how she chose to live her life. It wasn't right or wrong, but there was no understanding in that type of belief. I looked out on the world and I saw beings hardened in their views, disgraced, in danger. I looked out onto the world and I saw those who would be easy to teach my understanding, my right view. And then he says, it is as if a pond is permeated with red, white, and blue lotus, born and growing immersed in water. They flourish permeated with cool water from their, from their root to their tip, never standing above their surface, but having a life. They're, they're not proclaiming themselves in the world, but yet they're still living. Even so, some might rise up and emerge from the murky water. Seeing thus, someone might emerge and have an extraordinary life. Seeing thus, I decided to teach my Dhamma, to open to the world the path to cessation. Those with eyes to see and ears to hear could come forth in conviction. He was teaching, for the first time in history, he was teaching something that human beings could engage in, in conviction, not in faith. Not in grasping after something imaginary or mystical. With conviction, meaning this is something I can do as a human being in my human life. Those lacking the eyes to see or the ears to hear, the pure Dhamma, I would not teach my refined and pure Dhamma. Again, simply out of practical reasons. They're not, they, they, they would not be able to attain it. Then he says, I would teach the pure Dhamma tirelessly and untroubled. Then the thought occurred to me, who should I first teach the Dhamma to? Who will 
who will quickly understand. He wants to get some, like anybody, like any human being, he wants to get some success under his belt. Then he thought of Alara Kalama, one of his teachers, wise, intelligent, competent. But I heard that he had passed a week ago. I thought, what a great loss it was. What what a great loss it was to my friend Alara. He would have quickly learned my Dhamma. And again, what a quick, what a loss, isn't it? Because Alara passed before he could awaken and gain full human maturity, meaning understand the reason why he was living this life. Then he thought of one of his other teachers, Udaka Ramaputta. He too is wise, intelligent, competent. But I heard that he had passed just last night. It was a great loss to my friend Udaka as well. He, would, he too would have quickly learned my Dhamma. I then thought of the five friends I wandered with while, atten- while attending to ascetic practices. I knew they were in the deer park at Isipatana. I took my leave to wander in stages. Along the way, I, I encountered Upaka, the, the Ajavaka. He noticed my composure, my complexion bright. He inquired, on whose account have you gone forth? Who is your teacher? In whose dhamma do you delight? It was a common practice for young men and middle-aged men occasionally to wander around northern India and southern Nepal seeking understanding. Um, some today would call them bums, but, but at the time they were revered as people who were spending their life seeking understanding. So once they developed that understanding, they would teach the general population. So they were supported in doing that. And so it wasn't uncommon that you might be uh, encountered by a follower, a fellow wanderer wanting to know what you've learned so far. And so Upaka saw the, the newly awakened Siddhartha bright and wanted to know, who's your teacher? And he said to Upaka, I have left the world behind through my own understanding. I'm the one that understands. I am released from all wrong views, from all phenomena. Empty of ignorance, I am free of craving. My realization is taught by none. To whom should I declare as my teacher? I have no teacher as one like me cannot be found. There's no one in the world. The Buddha is making a declaration that... um, that contradicts much of what modern Buddhism says, that there's been endless numbers of Buddhas in the past and into the future. And they also, by implication and some by some directly saying so, that awakening is impossible in this lifetime. Some teach that human awakening is no longer possible, but keep going. But if it's possible, it's going to take you endless lifetimes. That is such a damaging um, and demeaning thought to human beings that contradicts everything the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught human beings to awaken in this lifetime, that they can and they should. I have no teacher as no one like me can be found. I have no counterpart, for I am an arahant in the world. I am the unexcelled teacher, rightly self-awakened. He did it to himself and we can do it to us for ourselves. The fires of passion in me are cool. There's no more eye-making left in me. You can trust me because I'm not rooted in my ego anymore. I am unbound. I will set the wheel of the true Dhamma rolling. I am traveling to Kasi. In a world afflicted with the darkness of ignorance, I beat the drum of wisdom. Think about how some people would see this person as so arrogant. In this class I taught Thursday, that person probably would have not accepted this because they see this as arrogant and hurting other people 
rather than an awakened human being knowing this is the most important thing any human being could ever learn is speaking with conviction. And to those that are threatened by someone speaking with conviction, it looks completely different, doesn't it? Because they're using that as the way to maintain their own ignorance. Upaka replied, just as I just described, from what you claim, you must be the ultimate conqueror. He's, he's mocking the Buddha. Conquerors like me have abandoned greed, aversion, and delusion. I have conquered all evil qualities. You are correct, Upaka. I am a conqueror. Upaka was unconvinced and shook his head and walked away. The Buddha continued to Deer Park. From afar, my five friends saw me. I was no longer gone from ascetic denial. Thinking I was living luxuriously, just because he put on a few pounds, they decided to show me to not show me any respect. As I approached, they noticed my, my awakened state. Now standing in respect, they took my robe and bowl and prepared a seat. One of my friends took a bowl and began to wash my feet. This is a, a, a sign of respect in that culture. And I noticed nobody's ever washed my feet, and I can sure use it. They, however, addressed me by my familiar name. Friends, do not address the Tathagata, a rightly self-awakened one, in this way. Meaning, you need to show me respect because I respect it out of, because of my awakened state. Because of what I'm about to teach you. I don't know who that is, but... Yeah, it's Jen back. See, Jen. Hello, Jen. Listen carefully, my friends. I have realized the un the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. What they're all he's telling them that I have found what we've all been looking for. I will teach you my understanding. Practice as I instruct you, as I instruct you, and shortly you will also realize the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. As I instruct, he's telling them. You got to let go of everything you learned so far. He's telling them, "I that's what I had to do. Listen what I'm telling you to what I'm telling you." The group of five, of five replied, "From your practice of the of the austerities, you did not attain any superior state or any higher knowledge from his ascetic practice. You didn't attain any vision worthy of a noble one. How can you now, living luxuriously, strain from your exertion and backsliding into abundance?" He's still standing there in, in, in rot, you know, worn robes. Straying from your exertion and backsliding into abundance have attained any superior state or any higher knowledge or vision worthy of a noble one. They're basically saying, be, how can you have done something that doesn't fit into our view? It, how could that be possible? How could you claim to do something that is so unique in the world that you're the only one? And the, and the Buddha replied, that the Tathagata is not living luxuriously or strayed from his exertion or backslid into abundance. He's, telling, he's saying, you're looking at me with a wrong view. I am worthy of this. I am rightly self-awakened. Listen carefully. I have realized the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. Again, he's saying, I am no longer ignorant. I will teach you my understanding. Practice as I instruct you. And shortly you will also realize the unborn and the unexcelled, the release of the yoke, the unbinding for yourself right here and now. He's making a promise. Just, just take up the practice. 
A second and a third time they doubted me and questioned me in the same manner. I then asked them, Have I ever claimed to be a rightly self-awakened one before? The Buddha is also talking about the importance of um, authenticity. That we shouldn't go out, that out of sympathy for others, we shouldn't hope to do anything out in the world unless we are authentically resting and understanding ourselves. That's a caution, isn't it? And look at the great danger that's been done. And I'm talking about crusades and modern jihads, etc., out of people in, you know, most wars, not all wars, but most wars were fought at least with the excuse of religion. And so, again, isn't it crazy? But, it, but then when you think about where that mindset might begin in, it's not so crazy to realize how a fabrication can end in war. And the Buddha is recognizing just the difference, isn't it? It's a, we're, we're learning to be a human being. We're learning to be truly peaceful with each other, not out of laws or fear or for any other reason, except I understand what it means to be a human being. And because I understand what it means to be a human being, how could I possibly harm another human being? It simply isn't possible, is it? But it is out of conviction that I learn how to do that. Not because I hope to not punch you in the nose so I can go to heaven when I, when I die. That's not conviction, is it? There's still, there's still aversion or hatred for me to think that way. The Buddha figured out a way to liberate himself. And so now... He says, I, you have never before, they say, you have never before claimed to be the rightly self-awakened awakened one. Siddhartha says again, the Tathagata himself is not living luxuriously or strayed from his exertion. I have not backslid into abundance. I am a worthy one. I'm a rightly self-awakened one. Listen carefully. I have realized the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. I will teach you my understanding Practice again. Practice as I instruct you. That's all you have to do. That's all we have to do. Is follow these instructions. And you will release. You will realize the unborn, the unexcelled, the release of the yoke, the unbinding for yourself right here and now. And so I convinced them of my knowledge and wisdom. Over time, living on alms, I instructed the group of five, being subject themselves to birth, to sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, aversion, to delusion, and now understanding the suffering of all that, they attain the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. Again, within the same environment that they were so troubled by, that they had tried so hard to understand within that environment what was going on. They practiced the same thing that the Buddha was practicing all those times. And now... They're hearing these words from an awakened human being. Friends, craving and clinging arises from the five senses. It comes from within us. These senses, from forms known from the eye, agreeable, pleasing, enticing, enchanting. They are linked to sensual desire. Sounds known from the ear, agreeable, pleasing, enticing, enchanting. They are linked to sensual desire. Aromas known from the nose as agreeable, pleasing, enticing, enchanting. They are linked to sensual desire. Our senses, our our normal common human senses are linked to sensual desire. How are they linked? Tastes known from from the tongue, agreeable, pleasing, enticing, enchanting, are linked to sensual desire. Tactile sensations known 
known from the body, agreeable, pleasing, enticing, enchanting, are linked to sensual desire. This is the craving and clinging that arises from the five senses. It happens as a consequence of being a human being. Well, why does it happen? Where does it come for? Why is it happening to me? Ah, you're eye-making. That's why the Buddha doesn't tell you where it comes from, because it doesn't matter. Nowhere does a Buddha ever say where it comes from, where we come from, or where ignorance comes from. It just comes. It's just here. As a consequence of having a human life, there will be suffering, suffering because human beings are born ignorant of Four Noble Truths. Or so it seems. At least as far as that goes, the only thing I have to accept is I was born ignorant of, ignorant of Four Noble Truths. And it does seem like at least a few others were because they're gaining knowledge. They're gaining benefit out of gaining knowledge of Four Noble Truths. And to me, it is just that simple. And when I started seeing that proof that the, that the Eightfold Path was truly efficacious in my life, that I became inclined towards rightly self-awakening. And that's why I teach this this way. That's why our Dharma, Dharma teachers teach it this way, in the same manner that Siddhartha does. That's why we have a statement purpose and Sangha guidelines, so that we can do just this. Teach this one thing in the time that we have and nothing else. Then the Buddha says, good old Herschel walk, right? I made a comment, just something good luck, just because I like them. Every day I get just three dollars. <laughs> any contemplative, any Brahmin, any seeker who clings to sensuality in this manner, meaning you're living your life for sensual fulfillment, infatuated and enchanted with sensuality, what can I get? What can I avoid? Without understanding the suffering that follows or the path to cessation, they should be known as unfortunate and having met ruin. They have lost their minds and the world will have its way with them. Have you ever felt like the world was having its way with you and there's nothing you could do about it? This is why. It is as if a wild deer were caught in a heap of snares. This deer has met misfortune and ruin. A hunter could do with them as they will. In the same manner, any contemplative, any Brahmin, any seeker who clings to sensuality in this manner, who is infatuated and enchanted with sensuality without understanding the suffering that follows or the path to cessation should be known as unfortunate and having met ruin. If you keep looking in the wrong place, you'll only continue your own ruin. They have lost their minds and the world will have its way with them. Now, know this, friend. And again, these are words just as applicable today as they were then. Now know this, friends. Any contemplative, any Brahmin, any seeker who no longer clings to sensuality in this manner, who are not infatuated or enchanted with sensuality, understanding the suffering that follows from that type of craving and clinging and the path to cessation, they should be known as fortunate and will not meet ruin. They have control of their minds and the world will not have its way with them. It is as if a wild deer avoided the hunter's snares. What a perfect metaphor for the world is out there. Full of snares, isn't it? This deer has not met misfortune and has survived ruin, has avoided ruin. A hunter could not do with them what they will. 
In the same manner, any contemplative, any Brahmin, any seeker who does not cling to sensuality in this manner is not infatuated or enchanted with sensuality, who understands the following that the suffering that follows from craving and clinging and the path to cessation should be known as fortunate and will not meet ruin. They have control of their minds and the world will not have its way with them. Again, it is as if a wild deer is living carefree in all ways. Why is it there, the deer carefree? Carefree? Because it has gone beyond the hunter's range. The Buddha is describing the awakened state. He's describing a mind resting in equanimity. There's nothing out, we know with, with conviction through experience that we can no longer be ensnared in the world. We know through direct experience we have control of our minds rooted in concentration and, 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 and I can't think of the word and express as calm and as peace moment by moment by moment. We've gone beyond the hunter's range. In the same way, those, those engaged in the noble search established in seclusion from sensuality and unskillful mental qualities enter or remain in the first yada. Again, now think about that as I review this, that, that you've all experienced these levels of jhana. Notice the Buddha doesn't put a time frame on any of it, and I've never read any place where he does. It's just taught to recognize that you're doing it, and if you recognize it, yes, you're deepening contemplation, concentration, and you can expect all the rest of this to follow. The first jhana is experienced as rapture born of that very seclusion. Joyful engagement. We've, just, we've put the world aside for five minutes or 20 minutes or a half hour and there's joy. And that isn't, there should be. If there isn't, generate it, conjure it up. Born of that seclusion. That first jhana is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. In that first jhana, in, in the metaphor, they have become lost to Mara. I've established safety in my mind. Ignorance in that moment can no longer attack me. I have become lost to Mara. Mara can't find me. I've established the right method through direct, in that moment, through directed thought. What do we mean directed thoughts? Nothing extraordinary. It's simply ordinary that I direct my thought back to, we're talking about the four foundations of mindfulness now, Back to a feeling that's distracting me or a thought that's distracting me or a thought attached to a feeling and emotion. I direct it back to my breath. It's a directed thought. I have to think about it. But that's deepening concentration, isn't it? I'm saying to myself that I'm distracted by a feeling. What did we just talk about? Being distracted by sensual contact. I'm directing it back to my breath. And... In that first jhana, I'm typically evaluating, meaning I'm placing a value judgment on my meditation. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Can I do it? Who can't do it? Who, what human being cannot be mindful of their breath? But isn't it strange that many, many human adults can't sit for five minutes just being mindful of their breath? We literally lose our minds when we're asked to do that. We can't do it. Isn't it strange? Does anybody ever think about why can't I sit quietly for five minutes without being terribly troubled by it, without having to have some distraction? But we never think about it, do we? 
at least until we come to Dharma practice and then we're confronted with the fact that, yeah, the problem is not out there. The problem is I don't have control of my mind. But we have the tools to do it. It is directed by a company, by directed thought and evaluation. They have become lost to Mara in that moment, the effects of wrong views. Furthermore, those engaged, engaged in noble search enter or remain in the second jhana. This second jhana is experienced as rapture and pleasure, now born of concentration. How, do we, how does that follow from the first jhana of rapture born of seclusion to rapture born of concentration? Because of what we just did. We directed our thought back to our breath. We noticed deepening concentration. So now our joyful feeling is... Excuse me. Our joyful feeling is informed by deepening concentration. We recognize it. There's joy in it. We're we're reaching our goal. And there should be joy in it because we're also awakening at the same time. Remind ourselves of that all the time. What is this moment holds the potential for what? To continue my mind towards ignorance? Or through concentration and refined mindfulness, incline my mind towards awakening? And that, folks, is a choice, the only choice that we have each and every moment. But we don't become distracted even by that. That's what Dhamma practice prepares us for in this moment, to practice wise restraint. Free of directed thought and evaluate. Let me go back one sentence. This second jhana is experienced as rapture and pleasure born of concentration now free of directed thought and evaluation, with internal assurance and inner poise, the joy of concentration permeates their entire mind and body. They have become lost to Mara or the effects of wrong views. Again, the Buddha reiterates that point. This is what we're doing. We're interrupting ignorance, ignorance's control on us or Mara's control. Mara is always metaphor for ignorance. Furthermore, those engaged in the noble search enter remain in the third jhana, which is equanimous and mindful, a pleasant abiding. Again, you've all experienced this, a pleasant abiding. The fading of rapture, that pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body. It doesn't mean that we've lost anything with the fading of rapture. It simply means it's no longer present. It's no longer present because our concentration has deepened past the point of recognizing that type of sensuality. It's not necessary. It's not practical in the third level of jhana. It's not an experience of deeper concentration. And nothing is lost and everything is becoming gained. They have become lost to Mara and the effects of wrong views. Furthermore, those engaged in the noble search enter and remain in the fourth jhana, which is pure equanimity and mindful. And this relates to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, too, being, being, being mindful of the present quality of mind in and of itself, meaning I am at peace with the present quality of mind. Pure equanimity and mindful, being pure, neither pleasure... There it is, Ron. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. They, we sit permeated in mind and body with pure, bright awareness. And again, think about your meditation, your jhana meditation experience, and ask yourself, have you not experienced that? Just, again, just a moment, 
of pure bright awareness. And I think you will. And that's the fourth level of jhana. Ongoing practice simply deepens that experience and lengthens it. But that's all. That's the only difference. They sit permeated in mind and body with pure bright awareness. They have become lost to Mara, lost to wrong views. So that the uh, establishment of having lost, become lost to Mara is established in the first breath, in the first jhana, right? And that's how, that's why this moment, that's why wise restraint can be practiced in this moment. Why it doesn't take, when I'm distracted, when I realize I've lost my mind in this moment for one reason or another, I take a breath, I've reunited my mind and my body. I've interrupted Mara's hold on me. And the rest of practice is just deepening that. It's just deepening that concentration. But it's established in each and every breath that we're mindful of. And further still, those entangled in the noble noble search with complete abandonment of self-identification to form, with a fading of aversion, with a cessation of craving here and there, meaning right here and anywhere else I can establish a speculative self in my imagination, in my ideology, in my ideas. With a cessation of craving here and there, they enter and remain in a dimension of infinite space. This is not to be seen as a progression past the fourth level of jhana. The Buddhists recognizing the inclination of a mind possibly nearing that awakened state, well-concentrated, that still might be grasping after more. And where does more, where does a mind go when it's seeking more, not in the human plane? Well, it has to be in their imagination. And what is the common resolution for that? Nothingness or emptiness. That's the major creed of modern Buddhism. Let's, let's rush headlong as fast as we can to nothingness, to emptiness. The whole goal is to emptiness. The self is nothing. Well, the self is everything when we understand what a self truly is, a six-property self. And further still, those engaged in a noble search with complete abandoning of the dimension of infinite space, another fabricated realm, they enter remain in the dimension of infinite consciousness. Again, we're just going down all these imaginary realms that were common during the Buddhist time that he's saying, if you go there, recognize it's just a fabrication. And further still, those engaged in the noble search with complete abandoning of the dimension of infinite consciousness, they enter remain in the dimension of nothingness. Knowing there is nothing, they have become lost to Mara. There's nothing there. And further still, those engaged in a noble search with complete abandoning, complete abandoning of the dimension of nothingness, also known, a.k.a. the dimension of emptiness, they enter and remain in a dimension of neither perception nor non-perception. This was Udhakaramaputta's Dhamma. They have become lost to Mara, lost to the effects of wrong views. And further still, those engaged in a noble search with complete abandoning of the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception. Again, this is, this is just something that common, that spiritual practitioners during the Buddhist time commonly grasp after, just as they do today. They enter and remain in a cessation of the perception of perception and feeling. Free of reaction, knowledge and wisdom now well established, greed, aversion and delusion are completely overcome. Free of reaction. That mind now free of reaction. 
fear and aversion, the three defilements have become overcome. So recognize that quality of mind when it's established, when you're free of reaction in a situation that might, in the past, have been, uh, your mind might be very reactive because now you're practicing wise restraint, you've united your mind and your body, you're living as a human being, not as a fabricated self that is constantly reacting, rooted in greed and aversion. Free of reaction, knowledge and wisdom now well established, greed, aversion and delusion are completely overcome. They have become lost to Mara, lost to the effects of wrong view. So what are we talking about? Always becoming lost to Mara, that's the goal. To remain in a, in a state where Mara cannot find us, where our own ignorance is no longer present. As the Buddha said, there is nothing left within us to provoke another moment rooted in ignorance. How did we recognize that? What is the, the primary quality of mind necessary to recognize that we've achieved that awakened state? It begins, it ends where we begin, with concentration. We first begin that our practice. Remember when we began it many, many weeks ago? And now we're developing into this awakened person through concentration, through this simple, gentle practice, through jhana meditation. Having engaged in the noble search, they are unattached to anything in the world or any fabricated view. They are as carefree as a deer far removed from a hunter's range. Why are they carefree as a deer removed from a hunter's range? Because they have completed the noble search. And through their own efforts, they have gone beyond Mara's reach. They have gone beyond the reach of ignorance of four noble truths. Those who have engaged in the noble search, who have completed the Eightfold Path, are said to be rightly self-awakened. This is what the great teacher said. The group of five were gratified with these words. That's the end of the sutta. I should say that's the end of this remarkable sutta. Isn't it? Mm. Right, Mary? You can disagree with me, though. What do you think, Mary? No, I'm not disagreeing. <laughs> um, no, it is marvelous. It's full and it's rich. It's got a lot mm. in it. Um, I feel like sometimes when I hear a sutta, like this, I just want to say, yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I, and so I think I'll say that. I, I don't have anything else to add. Uh, yes. <laughs> Thanks, Mary. <laughs> Dhamma teacher Jen, how are you? Hi, John. Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, it's just so complete that I don't feel I like exactly what Mary said. I don't feel like I need to add anything to it. Um, thank you for the teaching, John. Another yes. <laughs> Slav, do I have a yes from you? Uh, it's a lot to digest the stuff. Uh, it is. Yeah, so that... And, that uh, that, that's what, you know, that's what, this is a, the third class I've taught just on this sutta, because there's so much into this, that it, you know, they could probably teach six classes. So you're right to say that, Slav, but that's just what ongoing practice uh, is for, and, it, it, and the, the main theme of this is just the importance of keeping your Dhamma practice pure, though, so, and I think you know that, 
Yeah. Well, it's good to see you again this morning, Slav. I hope you join us again soon. Thank you very much. I will try to on Tuesdays. Ah, great, great. Have a wonderful day, Slav. You just How are you, Kevin? Good time. Thank you for the teaching. It, it's another yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it is, it's interesting how, you know, after the four jhanas, and, and you pointed this out, you know, the Buddha does talk about these other realms, and you can see how modern Buddhism would adapt those and say, okay, this is the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one, we have to go here, have to go here, have to go here. And maybe we have. I mean, in our society, we've learned about infinite consciousness and infinite space when we're nine years old, and you can sort of conceive of that even at a young age. Yeah. But it doesn't really help you understand where we're headed. And then even the the other one with um, either perception or non-perception, I'm not even understood, I'm sure if I'll ever understand that. Yeah. That's, that's the one at Nagarjan. And that was the teaching you know, of one of his teachers. But ultimately, you know, it's the path, it's the Four Noble Truths and the yeah. people path. So... Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Again, it, it's it's a simple path. You know, it's, it's not easy at times, I guess, but it is simple. Thanks, Kevin. Sangha mom. Hi, John. Hi, everyone. Good to have you back. Oh, it's so good to be back. Thank you. Um, yeah, this this was a great. I listened to you on Tuesday, and this was this was like. Well, Sangha Mom is coming back, so let's give her a complete review. <laughs> <laughs> it was very, it's, it's just a yes. And, <laughs> and I learned, I really learned from today's, from the way you taught it, John, today. Um, the, the levels of jhana explained were really understood by me today, even though I've experienced them. But never could put it into words. And when you put it into words before, I wasn't sure that I was, is that what I'm experiencing? But today, having you go through this the way you did, it kind of all came together. So it was very, it was was very, informative for me. It was like the, the, the knowledge met the experience uh-huh. and it was really interesting to listen to it and to, to feel that happening. Thank you. It, I, I, I'm smiling because it's so interesting you saying it that way because I think, I'm going to put David on the spot. Can you explain why that is, what Mary just said? It Becky, kind of goes back means, to what you said on the. what Becky just what, said. What, I'm sorry, what Becky just said. What did I say? You said Mary. Uh, That's okay. I'll, I don't mind being confused with Mary. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you nailed it on the retreat, too. That same thing. What aspect? That when Larry. Uh, the, oh. the, 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 the difference. Because you, you said that, you, yeah. that I taught it differently, you've heard it. Yes. Well, as David explained, I'm different, and you heard it differently. Or more effectively, because you're different. That's right. And we're, and that's why the Dhamma is always 
vibrant and, and, and meaningful because mm-hmm. it and is dynamic. noble. It's, di- yeah, it's dynamic in yes. that way. And because of your practice, that you've all all of your right effort over the past years, you were able to hear these things in a different way. Maybe not not in a different way, but a way that you can more apply it to your own experience. And that's when it makes that ehepasiko. You had that ehepasiko moment again and again and again, but right here, right now, you know. And again, that's how the Dhamma works. It's just as Becky described it, and just as David explained it on retreat, the teacher. Whoever that is is always different, and you are. You know, the student is always different. There's always something. I mean, you know, I am the, the most awakened person that's ever lived besides Siddhartha. <laughs> but even so, every time I teach this or any other sutta, I get something more and more profound out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just it's just like that. And again, it's well. Thank you, Becky. Thank you, John. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, John. <clears throat> I had a very similar experience to Becky in this sensation of, you know, experience and knowledge kind of coming together. Yeah. Um, what struck me about this sutta is, um, it, for me, it really lends weight and solidity to awakening. Yeah. You know, the, it's, uh, um, it's the direct experience of, of the Buddha himself. Yeah. Um, described in, you know, uh, in real time, <laughs> as, yeah, as it were, which makes it, absolutely available to all the rest of us um and uh it's just encouraging and um you know i think solidifies practice because you can see it yeah right there there it is yeah it actually happened yeah 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 and you you experience your own gradual awakening in real time again that's that's what that's what makes this possible as a rightly self-awakening path because we can experience we know where we are at any really at any point in our Dhamma practice we are giving benchmarks if we're willing to use them and look at them and what is that benchmark it's in this moment is my mind calm and if it's not we know from Dhamma practice just take a breath and come back into this moment thank you Adam good good morning Bridget good morning John I don't have anything to add but thank you and yes another yes yes. did you give me a yes Uh, sorry I meant to say yes (laughs) (laughs) yes wrong Oh yes. Thank you. <laughs> oh, yes. Can I have an aim? Um, yeah. It, it, but it all boils down to uh, a, a very simple path. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and and yeah, as he meets the the five, he he, he keeps saying, "Practice this." You know, that's that's where it's at. Practice this. Listen to what I'm telling you. Listen, yeah. listen. listen. Yeah, it, it he just just wipes out all the confusion in the world just by yeah. by <clears throat> and, you know and this is why it's called the, the noble and ignoble uh, search yeah. and he says this is what this is what what the search should look like you know, this is this is a, a an effective search yeah uh, this gets you to to the goal and. I've done it, so here's here's the practice. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah I'm, I'm I'm gearing up for teaching the Nagara Sutta, you know, which is you know again it's, it's the same thing in, in 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 the beginning, and he explains how um, how this all happened, you know, 
what happened in his mind when, when yeah. he finally sat down and, and, and got his concentration together. Yeah. And in so doing, he's describing what happened to the world, too, mm-hmm. what, yeah. how it evolved in the way that it happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, for me, sitting down with the Nagara Sutta again, uh, there's more clarity, you know. And yeah. I'm different. Yeah. You know, I'm hearing it, I'm seeing, I'm reading it a, a, a different way. And uh, uh, that's, you know, that's the great thing of, of, of the whole Dhamma. It's, it's, uh, Every time you engage with any bit of it, uh, it just uh, it clarifies. Yeah. Thank you, Ram. Ram will be teaching the Nagara Sutta uh, this Tuesday, so I mean, I, 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 we should all be looking forward Reserve to that. Reserve your okay. seats early. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's going to be a forty-dollar ticket then. Dharma <laughs> teacher David. Thank you, Ram. Hey, John. I, I think of. Noble and noble, and often he's saying you've gone too far. He says that often yeah. in these different realms. But then the other side of the spectrum, have you gone far enough? Yeah. And are, are right. you applying yourself to the four noble truths and eightfold path, and not trying to modify it? and tweak it and causing confusion for yourself and that's ignoble yeah so why worry about these realms that most of us will never experience but yet we are trying to modify it to a seven fold path or a couple of the precepts and those things are causing confusion as well so that's right you know deal with what as humans we we deal with and uh, you know I I think that's a good takeaway so thank you yeah thank you for that David yeah we we can only address things that are in the human realm and so I mean it it, the what the Buddha discovered the the Greeks and Romans you know there was um, there were other um advanced civilizations that the Buddha was aware of because he was on a trade route. Um, but what really set the Buddha apart from everything else was that um, realization that the first thing we should do is figure out what it means to be a human being. He was seeing um, uh, rather intricate social systems developing. I mean, there were government, there were forms of government around. And he saw that how the the collective human mind was building structures, societal structures, that were rooted in that same ignorance, and uh, it, that's what he saw when he first left the palace grounds because he didn't he wasn't exposed to any of that. He didn't he what he he didn't see society. All he knew was the palace and that, and so that it is the societal structures that so struck him as the manifestation of ignorance and how they're manifesting in our structures. And that's just what has happened. So, and it's not right or wrong, but we've, we've been compensating for our own ignorance of Four Noble Truth by creating systems and laws and uh, even, even regulations. A lot of them are rooted in, in a compensatory type of thinking because we don't know how to truly govern ourselves. You know, and, and you know, we're working, I mean, as a society... 
we're always struggling with that. And that's what, that's what we're going through on a, both a microcosmic and a macrocosmic level in this country and locally and across the whole world right now. And this is the reason why we can understand this and not lose our minds over it is there is dukkha. You know, it seems to be very loud and maybe even more dangerous, but it's just dukkha. It's just dukkha. And we, so we can have a calm and peaceful mind no matter what's occurring in the world by simply reminding who we are. We're human beings. And we don't have much to do with that. But we're in it. You know, but we found a way to live in the world in a very effective way, but this completely disentangled. Any uh, questions before we finish with Meta? All right. And I'll have this talk up um, sometime tomorrow, at least. Oh, and uh, tomorrow is my surprise 40th birthday party. <laughs> so please be there. Uh, the, in, yeah, the instructions are, uh, the directions are on the, uh, in the email. Uh, but if any of you are uh, confused, just give me a call. But at Nakamixon State Park, uh, we've reserved the, the park and uh, two satellite parking lots for the overflow, and we've rented four buses to bring those in the park. John, before you start, I just wanted to say to everybody, I, I assume that many of you know that Jennifer has COVID. Mm. Yes. But yes. I just wanted to tell you that I was tested yesterday and I was negative, so I thought it would be okay to come. Oh, I'm, I'm and, and not wear a mask because yes, I'm glad you're here. Tested. So, just wanted you to know that. Yes, thank you. Yes, Jen. Jen has is recovering from COVID, so she won't be She's joining us tomorrow. From COVID, yes. Yeah, and you're doing pretty good, right, Jen? Seventy-five percent. All right, we'll finish with with uh, Meta as we always do. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, admitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will which harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the poor-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Thank you for listening. 
I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.